Hey, good morning, church. Great to see you. This is the day the Lord has made. We're rejoicing and we're glad in it. Amen. God is present with us today and we're glad you're here. Thank you so much. We're concluding this weekend a series we began some weeks ago on divine direction, trying to best understand God's plan and will for our lives. It's uh, the most frequently asked question we get in Christian ministry. How can I know what God wants me to do? Of course, we've been talking about it's more important to take care of who you are before considering what you should do. Who is more important than do? Why is more important than what? And so we've been talking about the shaping of our lives into the image of Christ. We've uh, chosen as our text this morning from the New Testament book of Romans. This is the Apostle Paul talking to the church at Rome. And I'm going to read the first three verses from the 12th chapter. As you're turning there, let me just say one more amen to the Dave Ramsey uh, financial peace event that's coming up on November 20. That's a Wednesday night. It'll happen right in this room. Uh, I'm coming because it's free. <laughs> it's free. Uh, so we'll start at 6.30, go to 9.30. Uh, Dave Ramsey will be presenting live, not in person, but live, and it's, and it's free. And he'll go through the seven baby steps. This will be a great refresher course if you've taken Financial Peace University. I'm coming because I know I'll learn something, and I know all this stuff. So it's going to be great, and it'll be really valuable to you, I know. So I hope to see you there. So Romans chapter 12, our custom is to stand to hear God's word. So as you're able, thank you for doing that. Again, the Apostle Paul speaking to the church at Rome. And he writes, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, his pleasing, and his perfect will. Well, there's a lot in there. There's much we can learn. So God bless us as we find inspiration through God's word today. Thank you so much. We all have decisions to make in life. As we've been saying, we make decisions today, and it will direct our lives and our tomorrow. Decisions made today tell our story tomorrow, write our narrative tomorrow. All of us have decisions to make in relationships, marriage, children, use of time, jobs, homes, money, vacations, possessions, big decisions, little decisions. And it's important that we try to find God's best idea and plan for us as we make these choices in life. And here's the good news, perhaps the best news of all, and I hope you'll hear this. Those of us who are trusting God with our lives and trying to walk, walk uh, the Christian life, the good news is that God has promised to be with us. He's promised to advise us. He's promised to keep us and counsel us. And this is, this is heartening news. We are not alone. And because God is with us, we can, we can make, make our way. Now, let me just remind you of a few things that God promises to guide us. I, lo I love Psalm 32, 8. I'll instruct you and teach you in the ways you should go. Jesus said in John 10, he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them. So there's this assurance, this promise that God is going to walk with us and that God has a good plan for us. Our text today from Romans 12, so we might prove what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, perfect, uh, pleasing to God. So, that, so God's will is good. God is good and his plan for our lives is good. And we can trust that goodness. It's so, so important. 
And that we should be reminded that it's important that we consult God, especially around big decisions, around big choices. Uh, no, no lives are lived well or end well without God's guidance. So Isaiah 30 says, Woe to the obstinate child, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, who make decisions without consulting me. So there's fair warning. And ultimately, our attitude should be one of humility. By that, I mean that God guides us when we are prepared to do his will rather than insisting our plan is best. And so we hear Psalm 25, 9, which simply says, he guides the humble. He guides the humble. So God leads us. He instructs us. He counsels us. He directs our lives in all kinds of different means and combinations of those means to reveal his will to us. Today was specific reference to big decisions. Could I encourage you? Take this outline that you're about to work and put it in your Bible at the end of the service. Carry it with you. Because sooner or later, you're going to come to one of those crossroads moments in life and you're going to go, what did the pastor say about making big decisions? And you'll have it right there. And these are five critical, basic, practical steps that you can take to discern God's best plan for your life, especially around big decisions. All of these points begin with the letter C. So if you're taking notes and you start writing something that doesn't begin with C, you missed it. So just heads up, all right? So here's the first one. Write this down. Commanding Scripture. Commanding Scripture. Let me remind you also of 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. Now here's what we know, that God's general will for all people in all places in all circumstances has been revealed in the Scripture. This is God's Word, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. This is the wisdom of God and the ways of God. Thank God for the Bible. Thank God that he's given us his word. Praise God that he's not left us wondering what his ideas are about life and meaning and faith. And so we have his word, which has promised to lead our, lead our lives and direct our steps. And so the, the Bible then becomes a general revelation to all of us. We know what God's will is for all people in all places, in all circumstances, according to the Bible. Uh, God will never lead us to do something that the Bible explicitly forbids. Never. For example, in marriage, you, you may know someone who's come to this moment in their life. They say, well, I've been married for a while now, and I really think it's God's will for me to discard the old one and get a new one. Well, we know that that's not true. We know that's not God's will. I've been, I've been praying about this, and I'm feeling more and more serious about this. I'm not sure the original one was the right one to begin with, and so this new one's got to be better. No. The reason we know that is because Exodus 20.14 says you shall not commit adultery. There are all kinds of explicit instructions that come with God's word. For example, we know we should tell the truth. We know we shouldn't cover our neighbor's stuff. We know we should honor our parents and love God completely. We know, for example, it is wrong to steal and wrong to harm other people, that we should give and be generous. That's what the Bible teaches. And yes, we should forgive and live at peace with other people. These are all general revelation to God. And so it comes through his word. Not only is this the first point in this lesson today, but this is the first step and most important step, that you first consult the scripture. 
Because the scripture will generally point you in the right direction. And God, as I mentioned, will never do something, lead you to do something that the Bible explicitly forbids. And so this is, this is our way. We understand the Bible. Sometimes God will even speak to us specifically through his word. Generally, he will speak through his word, but specifically. Maybe you've heard someone use this phrase, or maybe you've used this phrase by yourself. One day I was reading the Bible, and the words just leapt off the page. And I knew that was God's word for me. This can happen too. I was in a dark place, a discouraged place, depressed place. When I was at the university, I was in that sophomore slump. And when I say that I was, I was losing my way, I'm, I'm understating I was, I was in a bad place. I was in a bad way. And I wondered if I was going to make it. And one day I was reading the scripture and I found myself in the Luke's gospel, chapter 19. I read verse 1. And, the, and, and the, the Lord commands that at all times men ought to pray and not to lose heart. And I went, that's a word for me. Because I was losing heart. I was losing hope. I'd lost my way. And I wasn't sure what to do. But right there in the scripture was my answer, the, 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 the antidote to my dis discouragement, and that is to pray. At all times, men ought to pray so they don't lose heart. And so I made my way through that dark time by getting closer to Jesus, leaning on him and trusting in him. Commanding scripture. Here's number two. Write this down. Compelling spirit. Compelling spirit. Acts chapter 20, verse 22, And now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. This is the Apostle Paul. We've rehearsed this verse actually earlier in this series. And this is more subjective, isn't it? Compelled by the Spirit. That, that Greek phrase, uh, deo honuma, means to be kind of wrapped around by the Spirit and drawn in the direction God's calling you to. Compelled by the Spirit. Paul felt drawn to Jerusalem. Even though he was uncertain about the next steps, he knew he should do that next step. And so this becomes, uh, becomes part of our experience as Christians. We invite Jesus into our lives. The Holy Spirit indwells us. And when the Spirit of God becomes part of our lives, he begins to speak to us. And he, he tells us. I love John 10. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Sometimes your phone will ring. You pick it up. The caller ID hasn't worked or whatever. You pick it up and someone starts talking as if they know you. And you have, it takes a while for you to figure out who it is. Maybe you have to ask them, who is this? And the reason for that is because this is a person that you don't know very well. You don't interact with all the time. You're not intimate with. Now, another person might call you, and if it's not clear who it is, you pick it up, you hear their voice, and immediately you recognize them. And the reason you immediately recognize them is because you know them, and, and you're close to them, and you're regularly in, in communication with them. And so familiarity helps you identify the voice that you hear on the phone. Sometimes, and sometimes God will call and speak to us and we don't recognize his voice. And, and the only reason we wouldn't recognize his voice is because we're not spending enough time with him. We're not regularly in interaction with him. So when he speaks to us, we go, who is this? Now, let me just remind you something. Some of you are new. Every week I am preaching to myself. This is the deal, I've said this for years. I preach to myself for myself. You are here eavesdropping on a conversation that I'm having personally with God. I'm a mess. I need help, I need direction, I need clarity, I need truth, I need, I need, I need everything, everything that everybody else needs. 
I am preaching to myself. Sometimes I encourage myself by my preaching. Sometimes I uh, discourage myself from my preaching. You say, sometimes you'll say, that's a great sermon. That really helped me. Yeah, I enjoyed that too. It's good. Sometimes the sermon's not so good, and most of you are kind enough not to say so. But there is one thing worse than preaching, preaching a, uh, there is one thing worse than listening to a bad sermon. That's preaching one. So it's, it's a sad thing. Anyway, the point is that I'm talking to myself right now. Sometimes God calls me up and I go, who is this? <laughs> Jesus says, it's me, it's Jesus. Pay attention, you know, maybe a little more communication would help you identify my voice. So this is true for us. The more time we spend with Jesus, the easier it will be to hear his voice. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, they follow me. It's very important. Compelling spirit. Let me remind you how this works sometimes. Sometimes God will actually speak to you while you're praying. God, what do you want me to do? God, God, what is the next step? God, give me guidance. Give me direction. For example, in Acts 13, watch this verse. Very interesting. The Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. Here's my question. How did the Holy Spirit say this to them? There's no indication in the text just what that was like. I mean, what was the, what was the mechanics of that? The Holy Spirit said, set apart Barnabas and Saul. Put your hands on them and send them off. And I, I'm not sure how the Spirit did that. Was it a good thought into someone's mind? Was it a strong impression? Was it a feeling that one of the persons praying there had? We're not sure about that. And so it becomes very subjective almost at times when you sense that God is saying something to you. So, so you have to ask always, is it in line with the Bible? Does it promote love? Is it strengthening and encouraging and comforting? So does it meet the criteria generally? Can it be trusted? And so you process it that way. And so you listen because God will speak if you're tuned in to hear him. Now, here's another thing about the compelling spirit, and that is it often works in the context of a strong desire to do something. We mentioned this last week. This divine desire often leads us to divine direction. Uh, Some kind of of burden that God might place on us. You see an injustice, or you see someone being wronged, and you say, someone needs to do something about that. And so you react to it, you respond because you have a burden to do it. You, you feel a passion for it. And this is often what God will use to lead you right into next steps in his call of, on your own life because you feel strongly about a particular thing and you want to address it and deal with it. This is, this is what happens many times. This is one of, the, one of the arguments that people give occasionally is, I don't want to give my life to Jesus because if I, if I like surrender my life to Jesus, he might make me a missionary and send me to Bongo Bongo. I don't want to go to Bongo Bongo as a missionary. And the answer to that is it's highly unlikely that God will ever ask you to do anything that you don't have at least some desire to do, some burden for, some passion for, some inclination toward. This is the, this is the way God shapes us so that we become focused and oriented on the things that he actually wants us to be engaged in. And so, and so this, is, this is how the compelling spirit works, uh, drawing us to something in a strong desire. And then sometimes God guide, guides in more unusual ways. Uh, we might even call these supernatural ways. There can be a word of prophecy. This happened a lot in the scripture. There, there could be dreams or visions. Uh, 
You could have an angelic visitation. This happens occasionally. Maybe you will hear an audible voice. Now, these are unusual things, but sometimes this is the compelling spirit so that you know exactly what God wants you to do. 26 years ago, I was sitting in my office and a missionary that we supported at the time was home on furlough and she was talking, we were having casual conversation and on the wall behind where I was sitting, she saw the wall disappear and began to have a vision, a supernatural vision, a powerful thing. And she saw in this vision, this is 26 years ago, the faces of thousands of Kazakhs from Kazakhstan, Central Asia, standing in a large open field, mountains in the background, their faces upturned, worshiping God. Before we ever knew there was a, a place called Kazakhstan, before we ever met the first Kazakh. An amazing thing. This is the compelling spirit. I mentioned dreams. When I went to the university, I went to Valparaiso University, and, and there was a group of men on the same floor in the freshman dorm, and we have been good friends all of these years. All of us were in each other's weddings, that sort of thing. And every four or five years, we have a reunion. And this summer, we got everybody together, and it was a great time catching up. And one of my good friends, college buddies, his name is Sam. And Sam was born to Jewish parents. Both of Sam's parents survived the Holocaust in World War II Germany. His father has a, a very dramatic story. He was actually in line to go into a gas chamber. Everyone in front of him went in. Everyone behind him in the line went in. For some inexplicable reason, when Sam's dad, future dad, stepped up to the doorway of the gas chamber, the guard took the butt of his rifle and just knocked him out of the line. Both he and Sam's mother survived. None of their other relatives survived. All of the extended families of both his mother and his father perished in the Holocaust. The two of them found each other after the war, migrated to the United States, and had two sons. One they named Daniel, and the other they named Samuel, these Jewish parents. Sam shows up as a 19-year-old freshman of Valparaiso University, and Sam is very, very proud of his Jewish heritage. And his parents have instilled in him the notion that Christianity was in close association with Nazism. So in their worldview, they believe that Nazism was birthed out of the Christian ethic. And they were very confused about that. But Sam carried those biases. Another thing about Sam was he's very, very intelligent. Some of you are really smart in the room, highly intelligent. You're not as smart as Sam. Many of you know really smart people. They're not as smart as Sam. Sam is the, the brightest person I've ever, I've ever met. And uh, we had classes together at the university. Uh, what would take me hours to prepare for, Sam would do in five minutes. Sam has a photographic memory. If Sam walked in the room right now, he's a, he's a big sports bus buff. If I said, Sam, uh, just randomly, if I said to him, what was Carl Yastrzemski's batting average in 1967 with the Boston Red Sox? He could tell you. Anything Sam has ever read, everything Sam has ever heard, Sam remembers. has a photographic memory. S S Sam's a freak of nature. He's not normal. Sam was very proud of his Jewish heritage, and so 
in, in an attempt to try to reach Sam with the gospel, I said to him, Matthew's gospel in the New Testament was written to Jewish people. So he's the one who references the Old Testament more than any of the other gospel writers in the New Testament. Would you be willing to sit down with me and we will read the Gospel of Matthew together. And every time Matthew references something in the Old Testament, we'll go back to the Old Testament and study that passage. Sam knew the Old Testament much better than me. And so we spent weeks going through the Gospel of Matthew. At some point, I said to Sam, you know, what the Gospel is, in, is in, implying here is that it's important to know Jesus and recognize him as the Jewish Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. And Sam was very reluctant to embrace that idea. And we finally came to kind of the end of it, and Sam, very proud, very bright, had an answer for everything, and we, we parted ways one evening. He went to his room, I went to mine, and that night Sam had a dream, talking about the compelling spirit, the compelling spirit using unusual methods. And that night, Sam had a dream, and it was so vivid that it, it, it shaped and shook his life. In his dream, he saw a group of people standing. And he later told me that when he saw this group of people in his dream, he knew who they were. Though he had never met them, of course, these were all of his relatives who had perished in the Holocaust. And he sees in his dream this crowd of people, all of his relatives, and suddenly they are enjoined by Jesus. And they begin to say, look, we see him. Now we understand. Now we know who he is. Now we recognize Jesus as our Messiah. And it was so, it was so sobering to Sam, so, so life-changing, that at 3.30 in the morning, a knock came on the dorm door of my room. I opened the door, and here's Sam standing there. He comes in, and he tells me this very dramatic dream. And so I asked that night, I asked Sam this question, and I quote, are you prepared to make Jesus your Messiah and your Savior? And in classic Sam Seichert fashion, he looked at me and he said, well, let me put it this way. I'm not prepared to any longer deny it. And we knelt down next to my bed in a little dorm room when we were 19 years old, and I led Sam to Christ. Today, Sam is a medical doctor. He's a teaching physician at the University of North Carolina Medical School. And he's still the smartest guy I know, and he still lives for Jesus all these years. Come on, clap your hands. That's a great story. Isn't that great? It's the compelling spirit. The compelling spirit. The God we serve is alive. And he has released the third person of the Trinity, his Holy Spirit, into the world and into our lives. And he will speak to us. And he will direct us and guide us and keep us. Amen. So compelling spirit. Now, here's the third thing. We'll go faster now. Write this down. Common sense. <laughs> Everybody say that out loud. Common sense. Say it one more time just for me. Common sense. How many of you realize with me that common sense isn't so common these days? Have you noticed? Uh, maybe it's just me. When we become Christians, we are not called to abandon Common sense. Psalm 32, 9. Do not be like the horse or the mule which have no understanding, must be controlled by bit and brittle or they, bridle or they won't come to you. So don't be like an animal that has to be yanked around like this. Use some common sense. As Christians, we are encouraged to think, to be rational, to be reasonable. 
John Wesley, the father of Methodism, said that God usually guided him by presenting reasons to his mind for acting in a certain way. Christian author John Stott wrote, God's promises of guidance were not given to save us the problem of thinking. You know, if, let me ask you, do you think choosing a mate is a big decision? That's big, isn't it? That's like, that's like a life-altering decision. That's, that's a huge decision, picking a mate. Yeah. So it's common sense to look at at least three very important areas. There should be compatibility. First of all, there should be spiritual compatibility. Paul actually warns of the danger of marrying someone who's not a Christian. That's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. Think about it. Think about it. Find someone with common values. N number two, there should be personal compatibility. Obviously, our marriage partner should be a very good friend, someone with whom we have much in common. Uh, th this, this, is, this is the primary reason why God forbids uh, premarital sex or cohabitation, which is so, so common, so, so routine in today's culture today. It, it, stop and be rational about this for a moment. Anyone who's actually thinking about this for five seconds will come to the conclusion that if you begin a relationship based, based on sexual compatibility, that it's the wrong foundation upon which to build a covenant that lasts a lifetime. That's what marriage is, you know. It's a covenant before God and others where a man and a woman give themselves to each other for life. That's going to require a pretty substantial foundation. And if you don't lay the foundation, how can you expect to have this kind of covenant? So the first thing that people ha do in today's culture, because they're not thinking about it, is they jump in bed. Listen, there are all kinds of emotional and spiritual and soul ties, the, these, these unholy alliances and, and, and connections with, with each other that people engage in. Oh, come on, you know, you're just, you know, you're just being, being legalistic and judgmental. And it's just sex, you know, we're, we hook up, it's no big deal. It is a big deal. It's a big deal. Anyone who thinks about it knows that the younger you are, the more sex becomes predominant early on in your relationship, the less opportunity you have to, to consult values. It will dominate the relationship. And so there's less opportunity actually to get to know the person and understand their values and connect with them on a spiritual level and, and connect with them at a value level. And so the foundation is wrongly developed. Listen, listen to me. I'll be dead and gone when some of you are, you know, farther down the road. But just remember this. We are sowing to the wind right now in these relationships, and we will reap the whirlwind. You cannot expect to have a, a building that will last if it's built on the wrong foundation. And just common sense. Common sense says that marriage should be spiritual first. It should be emotional and relational next, and it should be physical last. That's the order. These are the steps of bonding with another human being. And if you get the order out of, out of sequence, you skip a bunch of steps and your foundation is weakened by it. It's just common sense. It's just common sense. It's not about right or wrong or morality or, you know, you're a bad person or a good person. Forget all of that. Just think about it. You want to lay the right foundation if you want your life and your relationships to be meaningful. It's common sense. Grab some of that. Yeah. So common sense as you're processing God's plan and design for your life. Here's number four. 
the council of the saints. The council of the saints. Look at these verses, Proverbs 12, 15, the way of fools seems right to them, but the wise listen to advice. Proverbs 15, 22, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. Proverbs 20, 18, make plans by seeking advice. Now listen to your pastor. I'm about to make, use a statement with the word never in it. Are you ready? Here it comes. I never, ever, Ever, never, I never make a major decision alone. Never. It's not smart. It's not wise. It's not, it, not going to work out. Listen, I can pick out the color of my socks. I can do that all by myself. If I'm in the grocery store, I can grab, I can pick out my own cereal box. I pick that one. I can do that all by myself. It's not a, it's not a big decision. But when it comes to big decisions, I always consult people that God has placed in my life who are trusted, who are seasoned, who are experienced, who are mature. And I ask their advice. Let me put two statements on the screen that are just generally two. Number one, the younger you are, the more likely wise counsel will come from someone older than you. The younger you are, the more likely wise counsel will come from someone older than you. Sober, there are sobering studies being done right now about where teenagers are getting their advice. <laughs> Most of them get advice from other teenagers. I wouldn't. Look, check with your parents. Check with your coach. Check with your teacher. Check with your pastor. Check with people who are older than you. Check with people who have lived a while. Check, check with folks that you trust. And here's the second statement. The bigger the decision, the larger the range of advice. So don't go through, don't go through a list, you know, do you think I should date that boy? I mean, he's so cute. And your, your mother says, don't. And your father says, I'll get a restraining order. Your, your teacher, your coach says, I don't think that's a good idea. Your pastor goes, no, no, not a good idea. And then you find someone who's befriended you on Facebook, and, they, and they, like, they like this guy, and they say to you, I think you should date him. He is cute. And you go, there, there's my answer. It's my confirmation. Come on, come on now. Don't do that. So don't keep asking advice until someone agrees with you. It's not going to work. Counsel of the saints, so important. Don't skip that step. It's a very important step. Here's number five, last one. Write this down. Circumstantial signs. Circumstantial signs. Yeah. Proverbs 16, 9. In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. For example, we know that sometimes God opens doors. 1 Corinthians 16, 9. And sometimes God closes doors. These are all circumstances. Acts 16, verse 7. So it's wise to consider doors that are open to us. There's no harm in walking up to a door. If it's cracked open, push it a little bit and look around. Maybe this is God, the door God wants me to go through. If the door is shut, don't force it. Don't force it open. A door that's clearly shut should not be forced. Not a good idea. Maybe it's the right thing at the wrong time. Maybe it's the wrong thing anytime. 
The door shut. Consider the circumstances. When I was five years old, I had a habit of running into my bedroom at night. My parent, one of my parents would say, time for bed. I would get up, I would run full speed, see a little five-year-old running full speed into his room, and then I would launch myself toward my bed. This was every night. I enjoyed the run. I enjoyed going horizontal into my bed. My mother had this bad habit of rearranging furniture <laughs> and not telling us about it. So one night when I was five, time for bed, I went running down the hall and my, the light on my room was off. It's completely dark in my room. And I launched myself and I ran in full speed and launched. <laughs> and then I experienced what physicists call negative acceleration. Because where my bed was the night before was now the dresser. And I went face first into the dresser. Now, five years old, I still had my baby teeth. My front four baby teeth completely disappeared. We assumed that I ingested them. I just, I, no I knocked my own teeth down my own throat. It's funny. You think this is funny? Try to visualize it for a moment. It was, it was, very, it was very traumatic. It was, it was lots of blood. It was a mess. And, and I, the long-term consequence of that event for me was there's a little skin bridge that all of us have that holds our top lip to our gums. Can you take, put your tongue up there right now? Feel that? Mine is a sh like shredded cheese. Because I just I blew up the skin bridge that night. You say, well, that's no big deal. It's a big deal. Every time the wind blows hard, I go, <laughs> my lip just, just flaps in the wind like that. It's very serious. There's no connection. Let me ask you a question. How many times do you think since I was five years old that I have, that I have run full speed into a darkened room? Zero. See, I got wisdom. I got wisdom from that. But I watch people do this all the time. They run headlong. They run full speed. Wait, I think that door, I think that door's shut. You should slow down. Bam! They hit the door. They run off the road. They fall off the cliff. It's astonishing to me. Consider the circumstances. Weigh them carefully. I advise people oftentimes just to make a, a column, two columns on a sheet of paper, and a big decision, just on one column, just answer the question, what are the details that are good about this decision? What are the details that are bad about this decision? Just write it down. Just put it, sometimes just looking at it on a page will give you perspective. I thought, you know, that's, that's probably a good thing. I mean, look at all the benefits. Or that's probably not a good thing. Look at all the liabilities to that. Use circumstances. So commanding scripture, compelling spirit, common sense, counsel of the saints, circumstantial signs. These are all touch points in a major decision. The night that I was going to propose to Beth. God knew this in the morning. I was at Valparaiso University at the time. She was coming up for the weekend. She was attending Miami of Ohio and Oxford, Ohio. And I was getting ready for class that morning, and God spoke to me. And, he, and, I, and I, this again, the Spirit of God speaking to me, saying, I know you're going to propose tonight, and before you let Beth answer the proposal, 
I want you to qualify it by reminding her that living with you, being your husband, is not going to be easy. And that she should carefully consider that before answering. I said, seriously, you want me to say that to her? Yeah, I want you to say that. Okay, I will. Well, that night, everything's perfect. I'm down on one knee. I've got the ring. I popped the question. And I said, before you answer, and then I mentioned that qualifier. She bursts into tears. I mean, she starts sobbing. Her shoulders are heaving. I, uh, I blew it. Unbelievable. If anybody could mess this up, it's me. It was very moving to her. And as she composed herself, she said, this morning when I was walking to class and we compared notes, it was I, the same second that God was speaking to me about this qualifier. God was saying the same thing to her. And when I mentioned it in my proposal, it was verbatim what God had said to her. If you're not absolutely sure, you shouldn't marry this guy. Now that was very reassuring to us. That confirmed to us that God is with us, that God knows us, God cares about our relationship, God cares about our lives together. And it was very reassuring at that level. And then over the years, of course, if we've been married 42 years now, anytime Beth goes, I don't know if I can keep doing this, I remind her, hey, look, it's not like you didn't get warned. <laughs> so it comes in handy occasionally. <laughs> God bless her. Pray, pray for my wife. It's not, it's not easy for her. In conclusion, let me put three things in your mind as you leave here now. Three things. Put them on the screen. Number one, don't be in a hurry. Don't be in a hurry. Sometimes God's guidance seems to come very quickly. As soon as we ask God, what should I, he tells you. But other times, there's a big delay, so you have to be patient. Don't be in a hurry, especially with big decisions. Process carefully and thoroughly. Number two, we all make mistakes. We all make mistakes. Some, sometimes we hear God correctly. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes we, we get the right thing at the wrong time. Sometimes we get the wrong thing at the wrong time. But what we know is that God causes all things to work together for good. Even in the mistakes, we gain wisdom. And God is with us. He never leaves us. So it's okay. We all make mistakes. Just keep moving forward. Keep pedaling. Keep your momentum going. God will order your steps. And then number three, expect God's peace. Peace is the final arbiter in all major decisions for me. I, go, I make sure all of these five steps have been taken. I've carefully, thoughtfully, patiently considered what God may be asking me to do. And then I shake hands with that decision. And then I wait for God's peace. Colossians 3.15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And if you can't, after all of that, it's not the first thing you do, it's the last thing you do. But after all of that, if you can't get peace, then you should wait. Wait until the peace of Christ rules in your heart. Amen. All right, now the answer is, I got it. Question is, did you get it? One more time, did you get it? All right, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your love, your desire to bless us, to keep us, to guide us, to counsel and advise us. Our prayer this morning is that we might experience the joy of having you alongside of us, knowing that you are working to guide our steps and order our lives, working all the things we do, even the, even the mistakes we make, working them together for good in our lives. 
So we pray for the desire to seek your will, the grace to find your will, and the courage to live out your will in our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name for his sake. And the people said, amen. Would you stand with us?